So what you are about to see behind me on the screen is called the Hill of Crosses. It's located in Chalet, Lithuania. Now, the hill is one of the most famous sites in the country. The origins of the tradition to make a pilgrimage and leave a cross are uncertain. However, it's associated with an 1831 uprising. After a riot, the people used to leave crosses in memory of those who were lost in battle. The tradition has been maintained during the decades until this day, and it continues. It's estimated that there are almost 200,000 crosses on this hill. In 1993, Pope John Paul II visited the Hill of Crosses and declared it a site of hope, peace, love, and sacrifice. Pilgrimages to the hill signify resistance against the wars and terror since it has survived the country's occupation. This hill is one of the most visited and authentic sites in Lithuania. And no matter how many times the government tried to level it, the site endures. During the Soviet era, religion remained banned and the Hill of Crosses off limits. In April 1961, the entire site, get this, was bulldozed and burned down by the authorities. Even though the Hill of Crosses was destroyed four more times after that, each time the locals risked political danger by defiantly rebuilding the site under the cover of darkness. Since gaining independence in 1991, religion in Lithuania is practiced freely and openly. But today, no one really holds jurisdiction over this hill of crosses, with different organizations and individual volunteers pitching in to maintain the site. However, even with an uncertain future, the hill of crosses welcomes tourists so that they might better understand the local community's difficult past and learn of its unshakable faith and feel hope for the future. Last week, I quoted Dallas Willard, who said that Jesus, along with two thieves, was executed by the authorities about 2,000 years ago. Yet today, from countless paintings and statues and buildings, from literature and history, from personality and institution, from profanity, popular song and entertainment media, from confession and controversy, from legend and ritual, Jesus stands quietly at the center of the contemporary world as he himself predicted that he would. He so graced the ugly instrument, the cross, on which he died that the cross has become the most widely exhibited and recognized symbol on the face of the earth. In the words of N.T. Wright, Quote, the cross of Jesus changed the world, unquote. Now, no one enjoys the thought of death. In fact, many people are afraid to even talk about it. Psychologists say that the majority of people cannot envision themselves in a casket lying there cold and dead. It has been said that our minds will simply not allow us to dream the instant of our own death we will wake up at the last moment before we die in our dreams. In short, we both consciously and subconsciously choose not to talk about it. We purposely avoid it. But have you ever considered the fact that Jesus did not ever have that option? 
Have you ever thought about the fact that his obituary was recorded and explained in graphic detail eight centuries before his birth? Which means that as a young maturing Jewish boy, he constantly read about his own death in the scriptures. He consistently heard it taught in the synagogues he attended. He regularly learned it in his childhood home. And he diligently memorized it as he worked. The truth of it was constantly before him. Jesus walked with death looming on the horizon, its shadow going before him rather than lurking behind. Instead of dogging his steps, it guided his steps all the way to the cross. A serious and sincere and sentimental artist of the late 1800s who was determined to, quote, do battle with the frivolous art of the day, unquote, spent three years in the Holy Land during the 1800s, late 1800s, and painted what has come to be known the shadow of death as he sat on the roof of his house. I've showed this painting here before, but his name was William Holman Hunt, leader of the Pre-Raphaelite Brotherhood. As you can see behind me, The painting portrays the inside of a carpenter's shop in Nazareth. Stripped to the waist, Jesus stands by a wooden trestle on which he has put down his saw. He lifts his eyes toward heaven and the look on his face is one of either pain or ecstasy or both. He is stretching, raising both arms above his head and as he does this, the soft evening sunlight streams through the open door and casts a dark shadow in the form of a cross on the wall behind him where his tool rack looks like a horizontal bar on which his hands have been crucified. Even the tools themselves remind us of the fateful hammer and nails. In the foreground on the left, a woman kneels among the wood shavings, her hands resting on a trunk in which the rich gifts of the Magi are kept. Her face remains unseen because she's turned away. It is obviously Mary, his mother, And she looks kind of startled, or so it seems, at the cross-like shadow on the wall. Now, although this scene may be historically fictitious, it is theologically on point. From the night of Jesus' birth, the shadow of death accompanied him. And without a doubt, Jesus knew that it was going to take place. Now, you may be thinking, but we all know we're going to die someday, right? And you're right. We do, but not many people know how or when or where. For the majority of us, it will come unexpectedly and maybe even considered accidental. Jesus, however, knew every single aspect, every single detail. He knew that he would meet his end violently painfully, prematurely in the disciples' eyes, and yet purposefully. But it was definitely not an accident. You and I need to know that the cross of Christ was by no means an accident. An accident, by definition, is an unseen, unplanned event. It is often an unfortunate event resulting from either carelessness or ignorance. The cross was no such thing. What God the Father knew, what all of heaven could foresee, what Jesus knew throughout eternity, 
You and I must come to understand and accept. The cross was planned. The cross was prophesied. It was proclaimed. And it had undeniable purpose. The certainty of the cross was the centrality of Jesus Christ's life. So I want to show you four biblical reasons why I believe that to be true. And the first one is this. It was designed by the predetermined counsel of his father. It was designed by the predetermined counsel of his father. Listen to the words in the first recorded sermon ever preached about the cross of Christ. It comes from Acts chapter 2 and verses 22 and 23. I'm going to read this to you out of the message so it will give you some color. This Jesus, following the deliberate and well thought out plan of God, notice that, was betrayed by men who took the law into their own hands and was handed over to you, and you pinned him to a cross and killed him. But God untied the death ropes and raised him up. Death was no match for him. In the New Living Translation, it reads this way, but you followed God's prearranged plan with the help of lawless Gentiles who nailed him to the cross and murdered him. The New International Version puts it like this. This man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. The New Century Version finally says this. Quote, you put him to death by nailing him to a cross. But this was God's plan which he had made long ago. He knew this would happen. And no matter how you say it, no matter which translation you read it from, it means the same exact thing, that the cross was pre-planned. As someone as well said, the moment the forbidden fruit touched the lips of Eve, the shadow of the cross appeared on the horizon. And between that moment and the moment when the man with the mallet placed the spike against the wrist of God, a master plan was fulfilled. That gives us hope, doesn't it? From the sin of Adam... To the death of Christ, the plan was put into motion. It was in motion. From the first word of sin's curse in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. To the very last word of sin's cure in John 19.30. It is finished, the Savior uttered from the cross. The cross was, is, and always will be central to the gospel of salvation. Luke, in his description of the first communion service ever celebrated, emphasizes this predetermined plan of God in Luke chapter 22 and verse 22. For indeed, the Son of Man is going, Jesus said, as it has been determined. But woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. Later in Acts, he again points to the revealed plan of God. Acts chapter 3, in verses 17 and 18. And now, brethren, the Holy Spirit records, I know that you acted in ignorance, just as your rulers did also, but the things which God announced beforehand by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he has thus fulfilled. Therefore, repent 
and return so that your sins may be wiped away in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Not only was the cross designed by the predetermined counsel of Christ's Father, but secondly, it was disclosed in the detailed context of this word, of his word. This scarlet thread of the cross is woven throughout the fabric of Scripture. Plumbing the depths of all the allusions to the cross given in the Scripture would take us a lifetime of personal study. Volumes have already been written about it. Jesus himself gave the best commentary, however. How incredible to have been there. At the time, these disciples were heartbroken, knowing that Jesus, their Messiah, had been killed, but the resurrected Christ turned their heartbreak into a heartburn as he explained the scriptures to them. Turn to Luke chapter 24. Luke chapter 24 and beginning in verse 25. He said to them, O foolish men and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken Was it not necessary for Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? Then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. Look at verse 31. Then their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he vanished from their sight. And they said to one another, were not our hearts burning within us while he was speaking to us on the road, while he was explaining the scriptures to us? Verse 44. And now he said to them, these are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, thus it is written that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead on the third day. And that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. Now when Jesus says the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms, what was he saying? You know what he was saying? The whole Bible. Throughout the entire Bible, the Old Testament at the time. The whole Old Testament speaks of me and must be fulfilled. Wouldn't you have liked to have been walking with Jesus down that road that day and have him give you that little Bible study? Jesus says, in the law of Moses, in the prophets, and in the Psalms, the whole Old Testament, the law of Moses. Let's take a few little excerpts from these three categories. The law of Moses, Genesis 22. Genesis 22 in the first three verses. Now it came about after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take now your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. And so Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey and took his two of his young men with him and Isaac his son, and he split wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. Skip down to verse 7. Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and said, My father, and he said, Here I am, my son. He said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham said, God will provide for himself a lamb 
for the burnt offering, my son. So the two of them walked on together. That's a great verse to circle in your Bible, by the way, pointing forward to Jesus Christ. And then they came to the place which God had told him. And Abraham built the altar there and arranged the wood and bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. And Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not stretch out your hand against the lad and do nothing to him. For now I know that you fear God since you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And then Abraham raised his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered him up for a burnt offering in the place of his son. Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide, as it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord, it will be provided. Moriah. You know where Moriah is? Moriah is, the region, is in the region of Jerusalem where Solomon's temple was built. You know where else? It was the same region where Christ was sacrificed. Jesus said, in the law of Moses it's prophesied of me. In the prophets it's prophesied of me. Isaiah 53. I don't know how people can sidestep this one, do you? If you're familiar with the scriptures at all, Isaiah 53 is a, is a graphic picture of what we come to in the New Testament as cru Jesus was crucified, beginning in verse 3. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And the chastening for our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging, we are healed. And you can go on and read the rest of that passage. And it's just a graphic, a snapshot of the servanthood and the sacrifice of Christ and of his suffering and glory. And then Jesus says in the Psalms, turn to Psalm 22. Psalm 22. We're just giving you a little bit of, a few excerpts here from each of those sections. But if you study the scriptures at all, you know that there are countless, countless examples. Psalm 22, verse 1. Does this sound familiar to you? My God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? Verse 6. I am a worm and not a man, a reproach of men and despised by the people. All who see me sneer at me. They separate with the lip. They wag the head saying, commit yourself to the Lord and let him deliver him. Let him rescue him because he delights in him. Look at verse 11. Be not far from me for trouble is near for there is none to help. Many bulls have surrounded me. Strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. They open wide their mouth at me as a ravening and a roaring lion. I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within me. My strength is dried up like a pot shirt, and my tongue cleaves to my jaws. And you lay me in the dust of, the, of death. 
For dogs have surrounded me, a band of evildoers have encompassed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They look, they stare at me, they divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Psalm 22. Long before Jesus was crucified. As a matter of fact, crucifixion hadn't even been invented yet. Amazing. The law of Moses, the prophets, the Psalms, the instances found in the Old Testament in which the details of the cross are disclosed are absolutely myriad. Three of Jesus' last statements from the cross were direct quotations from the Psalms. Even in his death, Jesus was trying to open the eyes of those who were blind, revealing that his death was no accident. What is the impact, let me ask you, what is the impact of that knowledge that you have now on your life? What impact does it have on your life and on mine? That all of this was written down long before it ever came to play, play out. How blind are we and, and, the, and the Pharisees and the leaders of the day did not connect it. They didn't see themselves as in the prophecy as the ones who perpetrated the crime against Jesus. How blind are we to what the scriptures are disclosing to us, to the details that God is trying to reveal to us about our relationship to Christ moment by moment today? How blind are we? I want to challenge you. I want to challenge each one of you this morning to read through the Bible over the next year, the next 12 months, and note and underline and highlight in your Bibles every single instance and reference or allusion that you can find to the cross of Jesus Christ. Keep a journal. Record your findings. Ask God to show you what he wants you to do with everything that you uncover. As you know, the Bible experts in Jesus' day, as studious as they were, they completely missed everything for the most part. It was right there embedded in the papyrus that they claimed to know that they had memorized. So if that's what managed to get by them, let me ask you, what are you and I missing? What are we missing? The cross of Christ was designed by the predetermined counsel of his father. It was disclosed in the detailed context of his word. And thirdly, it was defined by the deliberate course of Jesus' life. Defined by the deliberate course of his life. There is no mistaking that Jesus knew what the goal of his earthly ministry was. It was to go to that cross. It was his objective, his ambition, and his direction. Even though he healed the sick and he raised the dead, he preached the truth, he sought the lost, he fed the hungry, he taught the disciples, he went to Zacchaeus' house, he healed Bartimaeus' blind eyes, he taught the disciples... His resolute determination with all of that going on at the end of his ministry was one thing, to go to the cross. He was determined 
that the end of his ministry was to get to Jerusalem to voluntarily lay down his life so that he might take it up again through the resurrection. Though no one else understood it, even his disciples that were closest to him, he did. He knew a, a number of things about this that we ought to know. Number one, it was the point, the whole point of his birth. Luke chapter 2, and Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, behold, this child is appointed for the fall and the rise of many in Israel and for a sign to be opposed and a sword will pierce even your own soul to the end that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Notice what he said. Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rise of many in Israel. I think that's verses 34 and 35. It was the point of his birth. Number two, it was the pursuit of his life. In Luke chapter 9, verse 51, as the time drew near for his return to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. You know, Isaiah said it a little differently. Way back in Isaiah, in the Old Testament, in Isaiah chapter 50, in verses 6 and 7, prophesying of this, in the words of Jesus, prophesied long beforehand, Isaiah records, I give my back to those who beat me and my cheeks to those who pull out my beard. I do not hide from shame for they mock me and spit in my face because the sovereign Lord helps me. I will not be dismayed. Therefore, I have set my face like a stone. Some translations say like a flint determined to do his will and I know that I will triumph. Thirdly, it was the passion of his words. There's all kinds of predictions of the passion that Jesus gave to his disciples. In Mark chapter 8, it says he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he was stating the matter plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Jesus was very clear about his purpose. The disciples, they didn't have a clue, right? Mark chapter 9, verse, beginning in verse 30, leaving that region, they traveled through Galilee, and Jesus tried to avoid all publicity in order to spend more time with his disciples and to teach them. And this is what he said to them. He said to them, the Son of Man is going to be betrayed, and he will be killed, but three days later he will rise from the dead. But Mark continues, he says, but they didn't understand what he was saying, and they were afraid to ask him what he meant. I guess I'd be afraid too. Mark chapter 10, beginning in verse 32, they were now on their way to Jerusalem and Jesus was walking on ahead of them and the disciples were filled with dread. I wonder why. And the people following behind were overwhelmed with fear. I never noticed that in the text before until this week. Did you ever notice that? They're on their way to Jerusalem and Jesus was walking ahead of them and it says the disciples were filled with dread and the people following him were filled with fear. Taking the 12 disciples aside, Jesus once more began to describe everything that was about to happen to him in Jerusalem. He said, when we get to Jerusalem, he told them, the Son of Man will be betrayed by the leading priests, to the leading priests and the teachers of the religious law. They will sentence him to die, hand him over to the Romans. They will mock him. They will spit on him. They will beat him with their whips and kill him. But after three days, he will rise again. And Luke adds this important point in Luke 18. 
that all things which are written through the prophets about the Son of Man will be accomplished. Again, he was pointing them back. And do you know how the disciples responded to what Jesus told them? Have any clue? (laughs) They were totally oblivious to what he was saying. Absolutely oblivious to everything that he was saying. He had just spoken to them about his approaching death. And Mark chapter 10 verse 35 records this. Right after that. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came over and spoke to him. And said, teacher, we want you to do us a favor. What is it, Jesus asked. In your glorious kingdom, we want to sit in places of honor next to you. One at your right and the other at your left. Can you imagine? Jesus is telling them, we're going to Jerusalem. I'm going to die. They're going to crucify me. They're going to beat me. They're going to spit on me. They're going to mock me. They're going to throw me in the grave. Hey, Jesus, yeah? Uh, Can we sit at your right hand and left when you get in your kingdom? But what do we do? Jesus tells us what is ahead for those who follow him, right? Tells us that we are going to suffer persecution just as he did because a disciple is like his teacher and like his master. And if they persecuted me, they will persecute you. And what do we do? We completely forget about all these verses in the scriptures about how the world is going to treat us as Christians and we think that we are entitled to have our best life now. We are entitled to be lifted up as celebrities as followers of Christ and have large followings and to do all these things these glorious things, building an empire for Jesus. We forget. It's no different than what the disciples did. Lord, uh, I want to ask you a favor. Uh, make me popular. Uh, and, and then at the end, uh, when we get into heaven, I want to sit at your right hand. Don't we do that? For all intents and purposes? The disciples' understanding was pretty dull. Jesus' purpose, however, was definitively clear. Jesus said the Son of Man must suffer and be rejected. Everything written must be fulfilled. It was necessary for the Christ to suffer these things. The Gospels record at least eight more allusions by Jesus to his death, six of which occurred during the last week of his life. John's Gospel refers to it seven times as his hour. It was the hour of his destiny, for that is why he came. In John 13, Jesus said, Now before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he would depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. He picked up a towel and he washed the disciples' feet. Then later on in his high priestly prayer, that same night, Jesus said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that your Son may may glorify you, even as you gave him authority over all flesh that to all who you have given him, he may give eternal life. The fact that he knew he was going to the cross made it no less painful to him, however. Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 2 says that he despised the shame of it all. 
but for the joy of what it would lead to, the resurrection from the dead, the glory of the Father, and the gift of eternal life to all who would accept it by faith, that he would endure that pain willingly. He would take on that shame willingly. Because that's why he came. The cross was presented at his birth. It was the pursuit of his life, the passion of his words, and it was also the pain of his heart. On the Mount of Transfiguration, Jesus was encouraged to continue on to Jerusalem by Moses and Elijah about his impending death. You can read that in Luke chapter 9, verse 31. A little later on in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus was on the ground clawing the dirt and sweating drops as of blood, anticipating the pain of being separated from his father, which he had never experienced before. And Jesus was well aware of the pain that he would suffer. He knew what hell that he would endure for praying the prayer, thy will be done. We don't. We pray that prayer, but we don't know what's ahead of us. Jesus knew exactly what was ahead of him by praying that prayer. A hell, by the way, that he would endure so that you and I would be spared from it through faith in him. But as much as it was the pain of his heart, it still was the purpose for which he came. John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. In John 1.29. Something that could never have been done any other way, not by the blood of bulls, not by the blood of goats, not by any sacrifice from the Old Testament sacrificial system. They only covered over the sins and that for one year. But Jesus, the Lamb of God, takes away the sin of the world, removes the guilt of it completely. He was the stone which the builders rejected, a stumbling stone and a rock of offense. And the Greek word for that stumbling stone is the word scandalon. To stumble on Jesus is to be offended by him. Jesus was then and still is an offense, a scandal to many. As Michael Card says, he would be a scandal, a disturbing presence who would offend others. The cross is a scandal to many. Why do you think that the government bulldozed the hill of crosses four times, five times? When Mel Gibson made The Passion of the Christ, you remember that back a few years? What happened to him in the aftermath of that? He became the object of vicious attack, scandalized because of the graphic depiction of the crucifixion of Christ. Now, many claim that this depiction of how Christ died was an indictment against the Jews, and so they leveled all kinds of anti-Semitism charges against him, and no small controversy ensued after that. But regardless of what you think about Mel Gibson, let's face it, all of us are scandalized by the cross of Christ if we're connected to it, aren't we? No one wants to take the blame for Christ's cross. We want to shift the blame. Whenever we speak of the cross of Christ, we can slide into this attitude. Now watch yourself. I have to watch myself even as I'm preaching about it. We can slide into this attitude of aloofness and find a false sort of twisted sense of comfort convicting, convincing ourselves that it was someone else who did the deed. Judas betrayed him after all. 
Peter denied him three times. The apostles all abandoned him, the scripture says. Caiaphas is the one that charged him. The Sanhedrin condemned him. Pilate washed his hands of him. The nation rejected him. The Romans are the ones that crucified him. In the classic book, The Cross of Christ by John Stott, he reminds us that we are culpable. Were you there when they crucified my Lord? The old Negro spiritual asks. And we must answer, yes, we were there. Not as spectators, but as participants. Guilty participants. Plotting, scheming, betraying, bargaining, and handing him over to be crucified. And you and I may try to wash our hands of our responsibility like Pilate did, but our attempt will be as futile as his was, for there is blood on our hands. And then John Stott says this, he says, before we can begin to see the cross as something done for us, leading us to faith and worship, we need to see it as something done by us, leading us to repentance. Indeed, only the man who was prepared to own his own share in the guilt of the cross, wrote Peter Green, Canon Peter Green, may claim his share in its grace. Horatius Bonar in the 1800s, who has been called the prince of the Scottish hymn writers, expressed it well. He said, "'Twas I that shed the sacred blood. I nailed him to the tree. I crucified the Christ of God. I joined the mockery. Of all that shouting multitude, I feel that I am one. And in that din of voices rude, I recognize my own. Around the cross, the throng I see, mocking the sufferers groan, yet still my voice, it seems to be, as if I mocked alone. You see, Jesus was denied by his peers, betrayed by his friends, bereft of his father, all because of our sin, yours and mine. All because of the immense love that God has for you and for me. The cross of the curse became the cradle of cure. The offense becomes power. The scandal is our security. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 18 says, For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. It was the point of his birth, the pursuit of his life, the passion of his words, the pain of his heart, the purpose for his existence, but most of all the cross demonstrated to the world the power of his love. John 15, 13, Jesus said to his disciples, greater love has no one than this than a man lay down his life for his friends. And in John 10, 11, he says, I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. That's why there wasn't really any need for ropes to tie his wrists, no need of soldiers to goad him toward Golgotha. The nails were absolutely incidental. It wasn't the nails that held him to the cross beam. It was his love for you. And for me. 
Jesus' death was no unfortunate accident. It was an offering. It was a choice. It was a voluntary offering of himself for us. And so finally the cross was the demonstration of the definitive choice of his love. John 10, verses 17 and 18 says, The Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may tag it back up again. No one can take my life from me. I lay it down voluntarily. For I have the right to lay it down when I want to and also the power to take it again. For my Father has given me this command. See, Jesus willingly chose to go to the cross. He chose the nails, as Max Lucado put it. Yes, it, it was his design. It was designed by the predetermined counsel of his father. Yes, it was disclosed in the detailed context of his word. Sure, it was defined by the deliberate course of his life. But more important than all of that was the fact that it was demonstrated by the definitive choice of his love. His love for you, his love for me. So how can we neglect so great a salvation? Hebrews 2. Verses 1 to 3, and I'll close with this. That is why we must hold on all the more firmly to the truths that we have heard so that we will not be carried away. The message given to our ancestors by the angels was shown to be true, and all who did not follow it or obey it received the punishment they deserved. How then shall we escape if we pay no attention to such a great salvation? For the Lord himself first announced his salvation to those who heard him, proved to us that it is true. You see, my friends, the cross was no accident. The choice that you face today is not insignificant. It's not shallow. In fact, at the foot of the cross, we are knee deep, no, neck deep, in truth, the truth about our sin, the truth about his love, the truth about his offer of salvation by grace through faith, and the truth about choice, his choice of us and our choice of him. So how will you choose today? Let's pray. Lord God in heaven, we have waded through some deep scriptures today, many, and it's for a reason, so that our faith would not rest on the persuasive words of men, but on the power of the Holy Spirit as he empowers and makes alive this word which we have looked at today. I pray, Father, that you would allow our hearts to absorb and be saturated by the truth that has been contained in these words this morning from your scriptures. And may it change us in our outlook on what we have to do from this day forward as you call us closer to yourself to imitate Christ. May we walk with the same focus that Jesus did. For the sake of his name and his kingdom, I pray. Amen.